You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Now that heart is beating fast, and that's the rhythm I can dance to. I'm mighty glad I've got a chance to, that one big heart that's beating fast. Tomorrow morning, let it rain. Tomorrow morning, let it pour. Tonight we're in the groove together. Ain't gonna worry about stormy weather. Gonna kick all trouble out the door. Beat out all trouble and drum. Beat out all trouble and drum. Beat out all trouble and drum. And kick all trouble out the door. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Welcome to Radical Australia on Community Radio 3CR, streaming on 3cr.org.au. My name's Joseph Toscano, and once again... Kelly and her twin sister Kerry, the world's greatest producers, have pulled their hand, put their hand in a big barrel of live human beings and pulled out another guest. Barry Sutherland, how art thou? I'm doing very well. Now, that, uh, that, that music sounds a bit like Try Hard Ella Fitzgerald. He now, won't like that. Now, Barry, now, 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 Barry, you're boring me with all the music you'd chosen for your funeral before this started, and you don't know who that is, and you said, try hard, you're a bad boy. What, what you, what, you'll find out as we go along the interview, and you'll kick yourself. What year, yeah, what, what year were you born in? 1942, a very special year. Well, I, I'm pretty confident this singer was also born in 1942 because I've interviewed her and she's a an Australian household name. Uh, this makes yeah. it even worse, Barry, but that's all right. <laughs> now, you've done something. I've done hundreds of these interviews and you've done something nobody's ever done before. You've sent me some photographs to prompt my memory. Now, I've got some bad news for you, Barry. We... we uh, this interview or chat, I know nothing about you, and that's the beauty of it. As oh, you, that's good. Yeah, because it means that you can actually make things up if you don't, <laughs> if you want to. Because <laughs> yeah, we, yeah. we, we, we don't check either, so we don't do any yeah. fact-checking. So. Uh, well, fact-checkers, you check to see who owns the fact-checker. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah, but they're very nice uh, black and whites. This is great. Great radio. We're talking about black and white photos I'm looking at. Um, did you take these? Yeah, uh, all except, uh, well, all the black and whites, yes. And I think in that collection there's one colour shot maybe of me surfing and another black and white one which is taken by my wife. Right. Or, or my third, another third, yeah. Yeah, look, uh, yeah, look, I shouldn't say this in a program like this, you know, because we've you know, we got to watch our P's and Q's, but... I've, I had to make a decision between your wife and the Volkswagen. I decided I want the Volkswagen. Is that all well, right? Have you still got that Volkswagen? Okay. 
no, that one went to Volkswagen Heaven in, in the ni- early 1970s, or mid-1970s. Yeah, look, it's quintessential, isn't it, Victorian or Australian surf culture. VW, surfboard on the top, the VW down on the sand right next to the water and the water flat lapping in. It's just a beautiful photograph, a bit of a shadow here and there. Beautiful photograph. Lots of memories yeah. for me. Well, mm. mate and I used to drive down down the coast on that and we'd figure out, well, it's, how many waves do we need to have to pay for the petrol cost? <laughs> <laughs> Did you work it out? And the more waves we got, the better we felt because the cost per wave was getting lower and lower. Oh, right. Well, I, I think on the day you took this photograph, would have been a dead loss because I can't see one real decent wave anywhere. Uh, all right, let's get back. So you were born in Victoria? Uh, born in uh, in Melbourne and um, smack bang in the middle of uh, World War Two. Yeah. And um, I, my mother was pregnant with me when the Japanese bombed Darwin. Mm. So I say to people now, you've got fear of COVID. You don't know what fear is all about. When my mother was pregnant with me when the Japanese bombed Darwin, mm. and they were not nice to pregnant women. No, and what? And where? And um, where was your dad? Uh, he was up in uh, Ballycappen in uh, southeast uh, Borneo mm. uh, with the RAAF on airfield maintenance and construction under constant attack from North Borneo from the Japanese planes coming down. Mm. And were they both born in Australia? Uh, yes, Heidelberg, I think, and Rosanna, mum and dad, lived in, mm. and if in Melbourne. Right. I assume both your parents are dead now? Uh, yes. Uh, dad went first, and I had the great privilege of um, having that night shift in the hospital. I'd flown in from Perth by oh. courtesy of Qantas and holding his hand when he went. So, oh, right. uh, no, it is a great yeah. privilege. It is a great yeah. privilege. Tell, tell us, yeah. Tell us about your dad. What type of bloke was he? I, I noticed that you sent us a little photo of him in a khaki uniform, proudly uh, looking at you and 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 your mum. Yeah. Uh, well, as far as both parents go, I don't think I could have asked for better parents being first child. But yeah. dad's an interesting one because. I never met him or never knew him till um, till he came home and uh, defrocked in 1945. And I vividly remember uh, sitting on the high stool uh, in the kitchen in Preston, where we were living, and sort of looking half out the window and half at Mum at the kitchen sink. And I saw her turn around and smile. And I've got to be careful here. I can get very emotional. And uh, I looked round and I burst into tears because there was this, this male that uh, I never knew. Right. And, it, and it was my father coming home. Was he in his khaki uniform? Yeah, he was in his RAAF uniform, just standing in the doorway. Right. It, looked, it looked frightening to me as a, as a three, two and a half year old, so, three year old. So that's a pretty strong memory for one so young. Oh, oh, it is. It's, I can I can shut my eyes and I can still see that kitchen sink in the window and, and turning around in the high chair. So right. from then from then on it was it was just um, gathered momentum in terms of relationship with mum and dad and being the first child 
Um, they were just absolutely marvellous, encouraged me in everything I wanted to do and uh, supported me and were never once horribly critical or nasty to me. My God, you must have had some horrible brothers and sisters then because there's always, it's, it's always a balancing act in the family. You've got perfect parents. What were they yeah, like? Yeah. No, I had two brothers and we used to have fights, physical fights, but yeah. that was good for all of us because we learned how to look after ourselves. Yeah. And we're close. We're not, well, we're close in terms of living near each other, but we're not close in seeing each other all the time, but we always catch up and go and have lunch every year twice a to mum and dad's graves and special occasions at mm. um, Port Arlington mm. in the middle of Sutherland ancestry territory. Hang on, hang on. Sutherland ancestry territory. Tell us about this. You've opened up a little gate here. Yes. Uh, it's interesting. As you get older, you start to delve back into your ancestry. And... Um, in recent years, I've been doing it with my youngest brother, uh, and we remember my father talking about the farm in the Ballerine Peninsula, out in the rich farming area, and uh, I never really asked him or got to know where this farm was, only that his, his grandfather owned the farm and great, um, what would you say, uncles inherited it. Mm-hmm. And um, we eventually discovered what it was all about. And it was called Balmoral Farm because they were from Scotland, a southern clan, and uh, highlanders and farmers and uh, warriors. And uh, there's a road there called Scotchman's Road and a very famous winery now called Scotchman's Hill. And we wonder whether or not it was the Sutherland clan that was the foundation of all that today. Well, it must be, because Scotland's Road, you wouldn't think there'd be uh, many Scotland's Roads in, in the yeah, Bulgarian Peninsula. Right. And they must have had money, too, because when I first visited the Greys uh, a, year, a year and a bit ago, no, it was a year ago, that's right, uh, yeah. I, uh, I took, took my dog, McAlpie, and I, we walked in and I said, OK, Cosmo, where are these graves? We've got to find them. So we trotted off and mm. then over to the right and down the hill overlooking the bay, beautiful setting, were these very old-looking grave head, headstones. And uh, I thought, that could be them. So down we went. And lo and behold, there were these enormous gravestones uh, the highest in the cemetery, and there it was, George and Elizabeth Sutherland, my great-grandparents, and I just burst into tears. Mm. Well, it's not often. I mean, only about 10% of people, uh, Australians uh, in those days, got, actually got a gravestone, had enough money for a gravestone. To have the most prominent position obviously means they may have been part of that first settler wave or second settler wave, because uh, yeah. a lot of Scots yeah, came across in the 1840s and 1850s after the clearances. They came. That's right. Mm. That's right. And they arrived in Geelong in, I think, 1852 or 1853. Mm. Uh, and the information we've got for them was that they had one son, John, and a daughter, it just says girl born at sea. Mm. So uh, right. I often think about 
that decision to leave Scotland and come to a place unknown so far away, knowing that uh, you may never, ever return or you won't ever return and see your family ever again uh, to a a totally strange land and, and how they did it, being probably so young. Well, it's usually desperation. Yeah, yeah two, two, two types of settlers at that period. You had um, gentry who came across for investment purposes to set up, set up sheep runs and squat the areas, and then you had those who came across because they were desperate, they were hungry, or they'd been cleared off the land. You've got no idea where they, where they were in Scotland? Have you been able to trace it further into yeah. Scotland? Yes, my younger my younger brother's been there and mm. done a lot of research and traced it back. Uh, well, I don't know how many generations pre them. I haven't seen the data yet. But, right. Um, oh, that's interesting. He said, he said they weren't the wealthy ones. No, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, t- tell us about your mum. What type of person was she? Uh, mum was uh, a Cameron, so again, uh, Highland Scottish. So they, mum and dad kept that. I guess, tradition alive of marrying into the clans. Mm. And uh, she was from Rosanna and um, very good at sport, very, very good at tennis and golf. And uh, the same as Dad, just encouraging. And I I still remember one day I was playing golf with them and I was left-handed like my father. And we were on the back back nine at Port Arlington and driving up, uh, where were we going? West, so... My potential was to slice the ball over the fence and into the asparagus gardens. <laughs> right. And I hit the first ball, and oh no, it's gone a long way down the line and started curving over the fence, and Mum just turns around and looks at me and says, oh, Barry, oh, Barry, here's another ball. And I repeated that again. <laughs> she just kept quietly saying, okay. <laughs> Never, never rose up in anger or said you stupid thing or anything. Just basically laughed. Right. So. Yeah, and they were they. I was the, I was only the second person in uh, that small township of Port Arlington mm-hmm. to to go to tertiary education, and we we were in small business. And I clearly remember when I got to civil engineering four year course, there were fees to be paid. Because yep. uh, it wasn't totally free education, and uh, I would come home with the list of books, and it was probably a lot of money then, textbooks and things. And Mum had just quietly, they just quietly write out a cheque, and away I went. So I never sort of said, "Oh no, not more money or anything." I just got what was what was needed, not necessarily what I was wanted, but what I was needed. And again, massive, massive, massive support to complete that four years of civil engineering. Mm. So what, what was schooling like at uh, primary and secondary college? Uh, uh, pretty awful. Why was it awful? And, uh, it was great in terms of uh, friendship in the in the um, schoolyard. Uh, I was very sports-minded, so I generally fitted in pretty good. The migrants were called, called New Australians and down where I lived at Port Arlington, a lot of them fitted in very, very well, and I finished up playing football with them late in later years. Uh, excuse me, excuse me. Is this the real football or the aerial ping pong? This is uh, this is the real Aussie rules football. You mean the aerial ping pong, not the real football? 
didn't, didn't take on the Scottish tradition of playing soccer. You played no, aerial no. ping pong. I can't believe this. You're an embarrassment to the clans. You're an embarrassment to the clans. Absolutely. My father started that he was the foundation member of Heidelberg Football Club. So he played a bit of football. And of course, when you've got football, cricket and tennis and golf, that's about it. And that was, you know, soccer was never heard of. Well, I've got a good friend of mine is actually a committee member of the Heidelberg Football Club. <laughs> Isn't it quite yeah. funny that the, the club your father started in Heidelberg is still functioning quite well? Yes, I've got photos of him standing there in his Heidelberg football jumper. Yeah. Um, and the other one, he was he was a keen cyclist because his my grandparents, his parents, lived in uh, Upper Plenty Road mm. in Heidelberg and had a dairy farm placed all the way back down to, um, what is it, the Mary Creek or something like that to the, down the bottom, going back into Melbourne. Mm. Um, pro- probably 80 or 100 acres. Uh, of course, that's all built up now, but we have a photo of the house that sat in uh, on the front of the block at um, Upper Plenty Road. So he used to ride. He used to ride his bicycle from Heidelberg um, down Bell Street and into the city to to work when he was a youngster before he was drafted into um, the air force. Right. Did Did your father ever speak about his war experiences, or that was just something he kept to himself? Basically, kept to himself. But we had family family albums which we still got, and that. Those, that picture of him and, and many, many others I've been scanning mm. to retain the history. No, he didn't talk a lot about it. Um, he was uh, like all the others in that, in Port Arlington at the time. They were close-knit group uh, in the uh, uh, RSL and marched in the Anzac, local Anzac march every year. And um, there were two... Two guys I clearly remember that uh, always drunk, and as kids we thought that wasn't really nice, you know, drunk so and so. And it was only in latter years when my father told me that the one of them that lived next door to us and owned the Port Arlington famous bakery, uh, he was captured by the Japanese, who was strapping, you know, a six foot plus footballer. Right. and uh, held in captivity for many, many years, and uh, I guess suffered terribly mentally and physically. Yeah. Mm. And uh, so all, all Dad and his mates, I would go down to the hotel, and of course it was six o'clock closing, so they'd all go down for a beer to have a chat and finish the day. And Dougal Stewart would struggle home, leaning against the shop windows from shop to shop, past our shop and into the bakery, Mm. And Dad was always there to check on him and make sure he got home. Right. And uh, and I didn't understand that until many many years later, and then became quite compassionate about it. Right. And then I had a, we had another one who used to walk funny and pigeon toed. We used to call him Old Phil, and he was the I guess the trainer, medical officer, volunteer for Port Arlington Football Club. And again, he'd, he'd been a prisoner of war and he'd had his, uh, some of his toes cut off. 
so he walked funny. But we never realised as kids just what the, I guess, the, the mental effect that that had on him. Yes. Yeah, so, yes, I saw a bit of that as a youngster, and I guess most young people today would not have any, any idea of what that was about. Yeah, and how hard it was for a lot of people because they'd, they'd come home and they were just expected to fit in, you know? Just like... Oh, that's right. And they were all, all, uh, all uh, encouraged to smoke to calm themselves down. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and have a drink. So smoking and drinking became the culture which destroyed a lot of them. Yeah. And getting back to your schooling, you said it was terrible. Uh, obviously, you're a great sports hero. Although you played yeah. aerial ping pong, what, what was it bad? What you didn't study, or you picked uh, well, on, or it, it was terrible in terms of what teacher you got lobbed with for teaching. teaching. Right. And, right. Um, there were some teachers I loved. I, I enjoyed uh, physics because I had great physics teachers. Um, we did this is at Geelong High School. We did French, and I. I had no idea why I was doing French and basically rebelled and held the record for being thrown out of class <laughs> and failed, failed abysmally, now wishing I had, I had been advised and encouraged and learnt it a lot more. Um, we had a great sports master and there were the, the odd ones. There was another one, our art teacher, and um, they basically said one to, to me one day, well, you're never going to be an artist. Um, and he turned out to be one of my uh, regular judges at Geelong Camera Club, which is a, another story we can talk about shortly. Yep. So, yeah, and uh, the maths teacher happened to be a very old guy who taught my father at Heidelberg High School, and he was way past being able to teach, so I was dreadful in mathematics. Mm-hmm. And uh, English, pretty much the same, just didn't get on with the teachers. So it was the teachers and, and the relationship with the students. Right. And, uh, and I clearly remember saying, well, I'm going to leave and uh, go to the Gordon Institute of Technology and do uh, four years of civil engineering. And I remember, remember not the headmaster, but the senior master, an old Scotsman said, well, Sonny, your maths are not strong enough, you won't pass. <laughs> and I came back four or five years later and saw him and said, well, I passed and uh, got honours in final year engineering mathematics. And he was he was just overcome with, with I guess, emotion. Uh, uh. So, so, so why did you want to do civil engineering? Oh, yeah, yeah, there's another story. Interesting, because my first choice of what I wanted to do was to go to um, one of the agricultural colleges. And uh, Dad talked me out of it. Uh, and I look back now, and I can see in the bloodline, through my grandparents, great-grandparents, that they were very successful farmers. So the DNA was there, and I, I realise now where that, that concept came from. So um, the only thing I was good at art, and the art teacher recognised it, was doing three-dimensional sketches. So I could, you know, look at this, look at a house, or look at a building, and a street, and sketch it very, very quickly and easily. And um, so then I drifted towards architecture. And um, my father said, "Yeah, but it's pretty competitive." And I remember those clearly. And then I was talking to my grandfather, 
who was a mechanical engineer on the mother's side, and my uncle, who was a civil engineer. So I fell into engineering. Mm. You regret it? No, not at all. Uh, I, uh, I learnt a lot, and it's been very, very helpful to me right throughout my career. Uh, because I, I started off in the public service and got a lot of experience in um, major water water infrastructure, but soon realised that having grown up in a uh, small business, tightly focused family where I worked in the business with my parents, that uh, I was a, a square peg in a round hole in terms of the culture, and uh, and started to rebel midway through the 1960s. And uh, I'd have I'd have Paul, Madeline, my wife, ring in and say, Barry can't come in today, he's not feeling well. And I'm on my way to Bell's Beach. <laughs> hang on, hang on, hang on. This is this is a tale of youthful, youthful indiscretion. You should have been working hard. Hang on, hang on, hang on. You didn't revolt at Gordon Institute. You got your degree. No, I got that through. First yeah. first year was a, was an awakening. Yeah. Uh, in terms of, I think we had 33 or 35 students in the civil engineering faculty then, first year. Mm. And uh, by the time I'd finished four years later, I think there were only, there were 12 of us, and there were only about nine, ten of that original 35. Yeah, that's not unusual. Not unusual yeah. in those days, not unusual. No. So let's get I mean, back to this. I want to get back to this Bell Beach craze. Where did all that yeah. start? Where did that start? You're a Heidelberg boy. Yes. No, Preston. Preston boy. We lived in West Preston. West Preston. Basically, yeah. family in Heidelberg and scattered all over Victoria. So, so you said you keep talking about the family business. What is the, What was the family business? Uh, well, uh, I don't remember Dad going and working for someone else. All I remember was he owned a... Uh, a sort of a milk bar mixed business oh, right. up in, uh, where was it, Murray Road, corner of Murray Road and Gilbert Road in West Preston. Yep. And then he sold that and bought a bigger one in Sydney Road, Brunswick. Mm. And he used to take me down. So I was probably only six, seven, eight years old. And uh, I used to love walking up to catch the tram and then the bus and then the tram again down to um, Brunswick mm. where the shop was and spend that time and I think probably he was always thinking that he wanted to get back to his roots in in the Ballerine right. and uh, that's how we came to come to Port Arlington of a year after my mother's parents had relocated to Torquay so hence the history for me in terms of swimming and surfing between Port Arlington and Torquay. Right. Mm. So, so interesting, the, interesting background, interesting life. Yeah. Do you remember your first venture into the ocean? Uh, yes, very clearly. I nearly drowned. Tell us about <laughs> it. <laughs> <laughs> I nearly drowned at Torquay. Small, tiny ways. I mean, virtually no ways. But there, it doesn't happen now because uh, we might talk about environmental yeah. damage later. If you remember that, but mm. what happened then was there were sandbanks and then deep channels between them, which is typical of a, of a beach that's got a 
sand around mm. and reef. And my cousin and I went down. To, I mean, we just walked down by ourselves. This is like eight, nine-year-olds. Yep. Uh, no supervision a couple of blocks down to the beach. Mm. And um, I remember swimming out and going, having to swim about, I don't know, 10 metres maybe mm. or less across mm. this deep bit where adults could wade but kids couldn't. Yeah. He made it ahead of me and a set of waves came and kept washing me back in and I couldn't get out of it. And apparently I went down for the third time and a lady saw me and pulled me out by the hair. <laughs> Well, you're right. Isn't it interesting? I mean, yeah. in this period of helicopter parenting, you know, you wouldn't dream of letting your kids go down to the beach by themselves, but you just you'd wander off and do your thing and yeah. you'd come yeah. home for tea, basically. Exactly. My grandparents uh, on mum's side used to say to my cousin and I, uh, OK, boys, yeah, you can, you, can, you can go down the beach, come back for lunch and so and so. So off yeah. we went. Ah. We just went down ah. and explored things. All right. So uh, I asked many, many years later, one of the legends of Torquay, founders of Torquay Surf Club, China Gilbert, and I was talking about this, and I said, who was watching the kids? And he looked at me and smiled and said, we were. <laughs> I doubt it. We were. <laughs> we we were. were. <laughs> the older guys in the surf club were watching all the kids and keeping an eye on them. Yeah, that's why some woman pulled you out by your hair. They That's right. They mustn't have been watching that day. Yeah, they were, they were fantastic. So anyway, that's, yeah. that's how my surfing, that's where my surfing started. Right. And I, I'm a risk taker in surfing. I'm, you know, I'm, I've slowed down now, but not, not uh, intimidated by big waves and taking off and taking heavy risks. Mm. But always I've had that uh, that feeling inside of respect to the ocean and not being gung-ho and doing silly things. I always sort of had that ability to look at things and sum up the situation and the risks, and I think that went back to that day at Torquay as a little boy. Right. Mm. You're listening to Radical Australian Community Radio 3CR 855 on your AM dial. This program is streaming on 3cr.org. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. So when did you first take up surfing? Um, pretty much in the, in the early 50s. We, we went to Port Islands and, and there are, there's actually a photograph, I didn't give it to you, but of me sitting on the beach at Torquay in front of the surf club, mm. where, where it is, but where it wasn't. And uh, it's all sand dunes, not grass and pat, not nice grass and beach walls. And it's all sand. And she's, I'm sitting there next to her, and there's a lady with a baby, and I think that was probably her friend from uh, across the patch at uh, Rosanna. Mm. And it was dated February 1945. So I was three. Three. And mm. it's three and a half. Mm. And um, I always wondered when I was in latter years, when I was working with Alcoa and, and in WA, and I'd come back here for business. And I'd head off home on a Sunday night, driving up the Melbourne Road, and I'd had this, this sort of pan in my heart saying, 
I'm going home, it's in the pots and pans, uh, but there was this pool the other way. Right. Uh, because, of, because of those roots. Mm. So, you, how long have you been associated with Torquay for? Uh, well, we're getting back to it. The, oh. late, the grandfather's house was built in 1949, so we were, we were coming before that. Mm. Um, there's a photo, I think, 1947 or 48 of myself and my next brother mm-hmm. and my cousin hanging at the back of this funny-looking ute, I think, in Torquay Camping Area. Right, so, so um, over, yeah, over yeah. Seven, de- seven decades, basically. Yes, yes. Well, can you touched on it before. What do you think of, um, I mean, last time I went to Torquay, I think it was a year or two ago, it just reminded me of a suburb of Geelong. <laughs> what do you think about what's been happening there? Well, you know, I, you, you, people have to accept reality that things change and things grow. Mm. with the next generations and so on. And um, I actually did a, a video for the Surf Coast Shire the other day, um, a short 30-second sound grab that they did with a number of people. And one of the things I said in there was that um, you uh, you are a local if you live here. It's not this 30 years, 40 years, oh, I'm not a local. I just said that's basically a lot of rubbish because right. you live here, so you're local. Mm. And um, someone asked me, well, why, why when a lot of people don't like all the change, can't cope with it, and they're not open to, you know, seeing new people come in? I said basically, well, look, all you guys came here after me. And did I ever complain to you about not being local? Mm. You know, this is at Bells. And uh, I said, you've just got to accept that change is going to happen. And if you don't like it, you probably need to move on. There should be some nice nursing homes for them now anyway. They were actually yeah, that no, age. Had, <laughs> I, mean, I, was, I was involved as president of Talkie Commerce for quite some time. And we were, right. of course representing business and representing progress and development, which is what that organisation is, and change. And uh, I had some pretty long and deep arguments in the Bell's car park. <laughs> and it was essentially that. Hey, come on, mate. You weren't even here when I was surfing the place, and now you're trying to tell me how it should be run. Uh, um, you know, and had those sorts of conversations and Mm. You were quite happy intruding on my space, and now you say someone can't intrude on your space. Yeah. Well, but it's, like, it's part of life. Oh, it's a very, very good attitude to take. You're right, you know. It is part yeah, of life. Yeah. Think, things change, and we may not like yeah. it, but they change. Yeah, if you embrace change, you're going to have a much better life. You won't, you won't, you won't be developing bitterness, and that's, uh, that's the core, core uh, of all sorts of Right. Bad things that can happen to you internally, mentally, and physically. Yeah, now just getting back a step or two. Look, I'm, I should ask you this. I don't know why I'm, I didn't before, but did uh, did you ever compete at Bells? Uh, yes, yes. I've um, I've been in. Uh, I won. I didn't win. I just missed out on the state title. Right. Uh, got third, third behind. Um, two other very, very good surfers, Doug Warbrick from Rip Curl, founder. And uh, Pat Morgan from Pat Morgan Surfboards. There was like half a point between the three of us for a state title in the senior men's. Mm-hmm. 
So uh, I blew that with strategy. I actually found, uh, this is interesting mentally, I could play football, I can do anything else quite aggressively and wanting to win, uh, fairly of course, but with surfing I could never really do that. I found it difficult to stay focused because I was more of a free surfer and, that, and I, I took a lot more risks and did a lot more things far, far better as a free surfer than under the you know, 15 or 20 minute thing in front of the judges. So mm. I always, always had a bit of difficulty and I could never work it out. Mm. Uh, so yes, I did that. I represented Victoria in the state um, Australian titles and also after living in WA for all those years, I got accepted and uh, I was in the WA state team in the, in the very senior men's mm-hmm. title as well. I say, I shouldn't scoff at your ability. Um, oh, you can. <laughs> well, compared to me, compared to me, compared to my, my I've never competed in anything surfing. So, yeah, yeah I'm on. Put it this way, I, 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 I took no prisoners at belt. Right. I still do that. I still do that to a certain extent, but I'm, I'm much more. Um, well, I've just, I just got to focus more on actually getting up and surfing rather than what's around me so much. Yeah. Well, I think I think, yeah, you, I, think yeah. I think you reached an age you'd be excused not to be surfing at daybreak. Oh, I haven't done a daybreak surf for years. I've never done a cup of tea, right? Yeah. <laughs> Go down when it's when it's gentleman's time. Yes. <laughs> Maybe there should be a time for the senior citizen surfer. <laughs> yeah, and I have I have a lot of good help. I've got you've got one guy, and I'm going to mention him, Damien Cole. Mm. Morris Cole, the great surfer's son, eldest mm. son. Uh, we were sitting out at rink on one day, and it was oh, shoulder to head high, good, nice size to rip on. And he said, hey, "Don't mind if I ask you this question." And I'm thinking, "This is strange." He said, um, "You seem to have some trouble getting into the wave now." And I said, "And he said, I guess that's natural." And I said, "Yes, I'm getting older and a bit slower because I'm 79." Did you and your wife ever have any kids? Or? Yes, yes. We had um, two girls. Uh-huh. 
we have two girls, yeah. and um, and let me see, they've both had boy, girl, girl, so we've got six grandchildren. Six grandchildren, uh, right. So the eldest daughter, she got involved in, in surfing, she mm. liked it, we've got pictures of her. Uh, I don't, I think on those, yeah, it's on those pictures I sent you, there's a shot mm. of me mm. leaning over, pushing a little girl on a surfboard down at Wilson's prom, and that's her. So uh, I taught her to sort of surf lying on a shortboard and steer it and all those sorts of things. Right, so you've been, you've been, you've been a, a, gra- a bad grandpa. You're teaching them bad things like surfing. Well, <laughs> I surf with my grandson. He's 24 now, 25. And mm. uh, I say to anybody in the water, don't abuse me, don't touch me. He's got my back. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to know. Now, we did me- you did mention that uh, one of your art teachers actually was judging your photographs. Of, uh, when did you fall into photography? Ah, oh, yes. When I graduated in engineering, actually finished finished the, uh, the tertiary a bit, we had a had a twelve a twelve month um, period where we had to work and gain experience, and then that all became part of the graduation. So four years academic and one year in the field. Mm-hmm. And um, what were we talking about? <laughs> Photography. How you, how you fell into it? Yeah. Yes, so 1963 was my uh, first year out, out after I graduated in 62. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can clearly remember, well, we weren't married, but we were boyfriend and girlfriend at that time for, for quite some years, Madeline mm-hmm. and myself. And uh, I had just won the year before um, the Rising Star Award for Port Argonne Football Club. Being a student, I couldn't, I had no transport, no money to go surfing, so surfing was basically reserved for summer at Torquay. Right. And uh, we decided very early in the piece when I got my first job with Geelong Waterworks and Sewerage Trust, which is now Bar and Water as an engineer, uh, my pay packet was twice hers. (laughs) She was working across the road in the Geelong Regional Library, and I think she was getting about, I don't know, $8 Eight dollars a week, yep. ten dollars a week, yep. or something. Yep. Then, yep. and I walk out with this cash of, of about fifty dollars. Yeah, did you get it in those little brown paper bags? I remember. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes, we did. Yes, yes. Yeah, yes, we did. Little bag, and uh, I thought, wow! After living on about you know two cents a week for mm. years, here I am with all this money. So, of course, we banked it, and uh, we did a lot of that, and uh, I. I thought, well, I've got to get a new car. So this old Hawksaw wife and that Dad bought me to go to night school in. Mm. So we traded that in on the Volkswagen, which is the one in the in the Picture, yeah. image you were talking about. Yeah. Um, bought that in Geelong and um, decided I needed a new surfboard because the one I'd made was pretty awful. So we got rid of that and bought a new surfboard and um, announced to Port Arlington Football Club, I'm retiring. <laughs> what? Not gonna you can't, you know, midfielder. <laughs> no, we're going surfing. So we went surfing and scrammed some wetsuits from army disposal stores from the up in Chilong, uh, Rory Street, I think, somewhere. Mm. And off we went and, and went surfing in that VW and, and the rest is history. Mm. And I decided along the, uh, later or mid-60s, 
three, I should buy a camera and take some photographs. So I uh, went to Camera House in Geelong and bought a second-hand uh, Practica, which I had for six months and then ditched it and bought uh, a Minolta SR1, which I've still got, and, and a range of lenses and started getting into it. And um, my art teacher, as I said, turned out to be one of the judges at Geelong Camera Club, which I joined on the advice of the founder of Geelong of uh, Camera House. Mm-hmm. He said, don't bother going to Melbourne. You know, the option was RMIT, photography course. Right. Night and I no, no, I'm not going to do that. So um, he gave me a job Saturday mornings to learn a bit practically and recommended that I join the Geelong Camera Club. And so I did. And um, Ralph Williams, my art teacher, was one of the... Uh, Judges, and the other one was uh, Geelong's very famous uh, legendary photograph photographer, Ian Hawthorne, who was out, outside the box in those years. Right. And, and they were both brutal on me, and I thought they were picked, they were, there's the dog barking. That's they were right. picking on me. Yep. And um, in reality, when I look back, they must have seen some talent and were determined to steer me in the right direction. Mm. So where did that lead? So that then led to uh, brutal improvement because when I first started showing the photos to the guys in Bells Park car park, thinking they'd love it, and they're going, mm, "Don't like that." <laughs> <laughs> so I I just determined to to go flat out surfing and flat out improving, and and I just basically photographed in between surf sessions with all the top surfers of the time in the best ways. Right. And and, what... um, and went from there, subjected myself to the brutality of John Camera Club um, monthly competitions on the subject. We had virtually three and a half weeks to take the photos, develop them and do the prints yourself and then present them. Mm. And, um, and that was my training and it was, it was awesome. So. Mm. so actually, did you actually make a living out of photography? No, I paid for everything, right. but uh, it wasn't a living. I, I, I got into magazine work and uh, became staff photographer in one of the major magazines of, of Australia at the time called Surfabout. Mm-hmm. Did work for Surfing World. Uh, preferred Surfabout because their production was better. Right. And uh, I didn't want my photos, I wanted my photos to be the best thing. And, uh, yeah, went from there and did uh, did Bells year after year with the total photojournalism. Mm-hmm. And um, then finished up at Camera House. And um, this is another story. On the beach one day, uh, a gang of us are talking. I think it was 69, I'm not sure. And uh, early 1970, it might have been. And... Um, Two of them says, oh, we're going to start a surf company. Oh, oh, yeah, okay, where, what, when? Oh, we're going to call it Rip Curl. All <laughs> 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 Brian Singer and Doug Warbrick, and they're jumping up and down about, you know, starting a surf company. They're oh. already been doing good in business. Yeah. And uh, what are you going to do, Bass? And I said, well, I'm, uh, I'm going to drop the photography. There's no, no money in it. You know, I'm covering costs, but there's no money in it. Uh, I'm switching to IT and going to Alcoa, mm. and uh, so I did. And in about last year, I was talking to um, 
the uh, one of the founders of uh, Quicksaw, who came out of Ripco, mm. and uh, Barbara. And we were talking about this story, and she said, oh, such a pity that you left. You would have been doing all our advertising work. <laughs> We do, we do, we do kind of deviate forks in the road, and sometimes we take we take a, a journey that we didn't really need to do. Exactly, and it would have been root girl, root girl to start with, and then add quicksilver to that. And we'll have to make a choice between the two. Mm. There was a big after I stopped for a few years. There was in um, from seventy. 73, 74, there's quite a gap in Victorian surf photography. There was mm. some stuff, but there was no one doing it seriously like I was. So. Right. Yeah, so interesting, that relationship led to, uh, in later life, um, some great deals with Ripcurl. We, um, all my images that Ripcurl use in their stores for decoration or anything else are on a, on a license. Right. Which was developed by Rip Curl and a, a friend who is a lawyer here, and it's all awesome. It's brilliant, and um, Rip Curl have access to any of my images, whereas no other surf company can get them. And right. That's just a that's just a gentleman's agreement right. because of our yeah. So there you are. There's the photography side. Yeah, um, it, it's inter- photography is very interesting because it's very easy digital photography. But in those days, you had to worry about taking a shot, how much it was going to cost you, developing, doing your own printing, sucking in the fumes, because I used to do a bit of developing yeah. myself. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, you, you, you hit it. My dark room in the laundry with curtains and things and yeah. all, all those sorts of things and, um, and learning things the hard way. Yeah. So, so and then, one of the, yep. one of the interesting things I've discovered in... in Latter years is scanning our negatives, and, yep. and the guy that does them here now for me, he says, "What happened to that film? It's got dots and stuff all over it." And we couldn't couldn't figure out why some were perfect and some were not. And I finally realised, I having challenges to doing framing now. I find if it's warm and there's a lot of static around, you get dust kicks popping up before you. You know, behind the glass, and you've yep. got to drop it all again and pull mm-hmm. it out and do mm-hmm. all this. And I thought, aha, that's what's happened. The negatives that were developed in the summer are the ones that require the most work in Photoshop to clean up, and the ones that are developed in winter and the cold, they're clean and crisp. Yep. And it's to do with the static and the dust in the atmosphere. So mm. there you go. So when you came back from West Australia, when you came from. Back to West Australia, is that when you started going into your own business at Torquay? Or? Uh, it started some years before. Uh, I was dabbling in, in, well, all they had was the darkroom, and still sort of pre-digital stuff, yeah. early 2000s, late ni- or late 1990s, that's right. Uh, I had a call from uh, the uh, Surfing Museum in 96. They wanted to run an exhibition of my stuff, and... Um, that was pre-digital, so uh, they commissioned about 60 prints, I think, to do, all in Zachron, and around about, I don't know, 400 millimetres wide, uh, 35mm format, Mm. and they all had to be framed in a certain way, so that was probably the start of the resurrection of my um, interest back into photography. 
and thus leading to the business and the gallery which we operate today, which just basically specialises in my work. Well, that's extraordinary. Actually, have a gallery that specialises in your work. Yeah, very yeah, few people, cool. very few people can say that. Uh, I remember, remember those old Pickering cartoons. Oh, I loved it. Yeah, there's a shop which is closed now in, I think it's Croydon. I used to yeah. go past, and they used to specialise. He used to, this shop, and he used to specialise in his his cartoons. Now that's an extraordinary um, accolade to your life, the fact that the gallery's there and you, basically it's your work and uh, you still you still do photography or giving that away? No, I, I, don't, I don't use, I don't use uh, the Minolta gear now. I've got um, oh, stashed away in a backpack, mm. uh, the, the SR1. It's, a, it's fabulous. I've used it. I, when was it? 2008 to about 2010 or 2011, mm. Mm. when we came, I came back from WA to talk there, I decided that I went down with a 200mm uh, lens on the bottom of the Winky Pop stairs and thought I'd take some photographs, you know, action shots. Yep. And I spent probably 20 minutes there and thought, what the heck am I doing? You know, not, I, I don't like it. I can't do it. I don't know the surfaces. No, no connection with them. And I just walked away and said, "No, nah, that's yeah. it. That's finished." Yeah. And uh, decided then that I would walk the streets of Torquay with the Minolta in film and uh, shoot all the old buildings. Right. And do a portfolio of that. And now, after posting them on our website. Uh, I've got to go back and now update them and say demolished, replaced by two-story units, you know, <laughs> since uh, 2020. Oh, and, uh, yeah, so it's a good record, which I'm still working on, and it's been very interesting. Mm. Uh, I photographed the south side of the street in the uh, winter yep. and the north side of the street in the summer to get the light yeah. angles right. Yeah, it's like that ambition everybody has is to photograph a sunrise for 365 days just to see the difference. Yeah, I've yeah, never done it. Yeah, I started once. I did I did three days and then gave up. <laughs> <laughs> now, look, we've only got three or four minutes left. So you're 79. You've had a great life. Yes. Have you got any advice for us losers out here listening to you? Um, yes. Um, two old people are go in a direction to please the majority of people. People say, oh, you should do this, and no, I don't do that. And people come under that pressure. And um, and I think I probably may have done it. I, I look back now and I think, gee, I wish I'd gone and worked with Dad in, this, in the business and um, pushed that. Maybe that was not right, not wrong, I don't know. But anyway, I just find tell people... Young people come into the gallery and I talk to them and I say, what's your passion? What do you really like to do? And they'll say so and I'll say, well, that's what you've got to do for your life. Don't, don't take any advice from anyone else because that's where your talents and your interests and your passion lies. Mm. And uh, I think that's the secret. And I see people come down, they say, oh, you must have a great life doing what you like and what you love best and going surfing. And I said, well, everybody can do it. It's just a matter of making a decision. But I guess you're struck with mortgages and keeping up with the Joneses. 
Yeah, well, that's right. You've got to make decisions, and sometimes you make wrong ones, and sometimes you stumble. You stumble into an that's area right. you never thought you'd stumble into. Look, it's been, yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Now, that famous singer you disrespected at the beginning was the very famous Margaret Road Knight, Australian singer. Oh, oh yes, yes, yes. <laughs> well, really good job of yeah, yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, you and Margaret, you and Margaret are very similar because you're similar age, but interestingly, I said to Margaret when I was interviewing her, I said to her, well, you must have made a pretty penny out of girls in our town. And she said, Joe, I didn't write the song. I don't get a bloody cent every time. It's, right. it's sung. You, you get, you get money for the photographs you did. So congratulations. You've got one on Margaret. Yes, I do. Every time one's published, and, and I, and I am absolutely dynamite. I take no prisoners <laughs> on copyrights. That's another story. The ones we've pursued and, and threatened yeah. with, you know, civil yeah. action. Yeah. So, um, they will also come in hard if people do anything wrong. So. Right. Look, if anybody wants to look at your work, do you have a, a site that, apart from the gallery? Um, where's yeah. the gallery? Give us the address of the gallery in case somebody goes uh, up there. Uh, it's, in, uh, it's in 38 Bell Street, right mm. across the road from the hotel, tucked mm. in the corner there in the building, mm-hmm. Watermark Gallery. And uh, on there, it's a working gallery. It's not just one of these modern things with just like an art gallery it's a working gallery so yeah. it gets a bit messy in things but mm-hmm. people love it yep. and um, and the website of course is watermark gallery whatever it is dot com dot au yep. and uh, it's an ongoing uh, ongoing development <laughs> in some places it's still a bit funny yeah it's um, good it's good well well I'm gonna do. I'm gonna. I'm gonna pretend I'm your friend. Thanks very much, Bazza. <laughs> you can call me Bazza. Very few people are allowed to do that. <laughs> well, I've had a. I've had a fifty-six minute conversation with you. I think. I think you know. I, I've earned. I've earned the right to call you Bazza. Okay. Yeah, but, look, but, look, Barry. Drop in. I'm going to. Thank you very much, Barry Sutherland, and thank you for uh, sharing your life for us, and more importantly sharing your uh, secrets to success. All the best to you and your wife and your children and grandchildren for the future. Thank you for the opportunity to talk on the things I like. (laughs) I noticed that. (laughs) Okay, Joe. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science, and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and the Nara people, and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.